This is Leaving Laodicea, the online podcast of Steve McCraney. I'm glad you're here. Stay tuned, because we've got some exciting things in store for you. Hang tight. You can't handle the truth. We uh, just finished up Acts chapter 1, where we talked about the promise of the Father, where the Holy Spirit came, and, and, um, or the Holy Spirit is about to come. The Holy Spirit was promised. Jesus, of course, spoke his last words to his disciples in, in Acts chapter 1. He was then ascended up into heaven. And, and then we have the events that took place during this 10-day prayer period that we have from really Acts chapter 1, verse 15, all the way to Acts 126. And we talked about that last week. We talked about the fact that, that even the right thing to do at the wrong time turns out being the wrong thing. We talked about some of the long-term consequences of the actions that the disciples took here, how they themselves didn't really meet the requirements they were now placing on the people that were going to uh, fill Judas's spot, and how the command from Christ was to do nothing, and yet they decided on themselves based on what they saw in Scripture, which was true, to maybe, maybe do something before God had originally had it timed. We don't know when that took place during this 10-day period. Maybe it was on day 3 or day 6 or day 8 or day 9. We do know at the end of 10 days, at the Feast of Pentecost, that all of a sudden the promise of the Father was revealed and the Holy Spirit fell. Which brings us to the questions about the Feast of Israel. We see Pentecost and we, oh, that's, I think that's a feast, or it's kind of the day where the Holy Spirit fell and a church was born, and churches like Pentecostal churches kind of take their name from that. Is that a Hebrew word or is that a Greek word? And, and what, what does that even mean? What are these feasts of Israel all about? And I'm not going to get into that at this point in time. I do just want to give you a, a general idea of the seven feasts of Israel. You have three in the spring. You have three in the fall. You have Pentecost between those two. They all, every single one of them, all point prophetically to Christ. The first three always point to his first coming, the last three to his second coming. And at some point in time, maybe on a Tuesday night, we'll kind of dive into that and, and show you the, the symbolism and the types in these feasts. And you'll understand clearly why the Lord laid those out for his people, because they kept pointing towards the Messiah. First one, of course, is, is Passover happens on a specific day, not a specific day of the week, but a specific day in the lunar calendar of the Jews. You have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You have the Feast of First Fruits, which are the first of the three spring feasts. Then, of course, you have Pentecost or Shavuot. After that, in the fall, you have the Feast of Trumpets. You have the Day of Atonement. You have the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tents. And all of these, again, point towards the first and then the second coming of Christ. And it's kind of, we would say, ironic. I think it's more prophetic that Jesus decided between his first coming and his second coming to use that fourth feast, the Feast of Pentecost, to give birth to the church. Let me tell you a little bit about these feasts. Of course, Passover is on the 14th of Nisan, which is the first Jewish month. Uh, we find that in Leviticus chapter 23. It says, on the 14th day of the first month of the Jewish calendar in Nisan, at twilight is the Lord's Passover. It was a perpetual feast. It's one that they would serve or to observe continually. On the very next day begins the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is on the 15th of Nisan. Uh, Leviticus 23, verse 6 lays that out for us. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord, and that feast pretty much lasts seven days. 
For seven days they will eat unleavened bread. So whatever day you have Passover on the 14th day of Nisan, whether it's on a Friday or a Tuesday or a Monday, the very next day, of course, would be the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And probably in, in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, most of the time you would have at least one Sabbath. And then you have the Feast of first fruits. Says in the first, the feast of first fruits is not tied to a date. It's actually tied to a day of the week. It says, when you come into the land which I give you and reap its harvest, you shall then bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall weigh the sheep before the Lord, saying, this is kind of a prototype. This is the first fruits of the crop. We're praising you, God, for what you have already done as a type for the bountiful harvest we have faith to believe you're bringing. And it says, he shall wave the sheep before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. Well, when will this take place? On the day after the Sabbath. So this isn't a, you know, the 14th of Nisan is, let's say, on a Tuesday, and the 15th is on a Wednesday this year, and then it switches next year. The fact is, it's the day after the Sabbath, which would be on a Sunday, the priest shall wave it. It's amazing that the Lord was resurrected on the Feast of Firstfruits. Because Paul talks about the fact that he is the first fruit of our salvation. And then you have Pentecost. Pentecost, of course, is a certain number of days after these feasts. Leviticus 23, 15, and 16 says this, And you shall count for yourself when from the day after the Sabbath, which is a Sunday, from the day that you brought the sheaf as a wave offering, in other words, 50 days from the Feast of Firstfruits, from the resurrection of Christ, you shall count seven Sabbaths. They need to be completed, and if it's the day after the Sabbath, it would be 50 days. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. That's why we know they were in the upper room praying for 10 days, because we know that Jesus went in and around them in his post-resurrection, uh, pre-ascension period for 40 days, and then we had 10 more days to Pentecost, and on Pentecost, of course, is when the Holy Spirit fell. So you've got Passover, you've got the very next day, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you have during the Passion Week on that Sunday, on Resurrection Sunday, the Feast of First Fruits, and then 50 days later, at the completion of seven weeks, you have Pentecost, and it's on that day that the Holy Spirit decided to fall, and the promise of the Father was revealed to the early church. Pentecost is known as the Jewish Feast of Weeks or Feast of Harvest. It is observed, as we just saw, seven weeks after the Feast of First Fruits, which happens to be the day Jesus rose from the dead, and it celebrates the beginning of the early week of harvest. It's 50 days, hence the phrase Penta. Pentecost from the end of the Feast of Fruits, and it is the second of three solemn or required feasts that every Jew had to go to Jerusalem to celebrate. So you've got at Pentecost, Jerusalem packed with people, absolutely packed with people coming to this required solemn feast there at Pentecost, and it's at that particular time that the Lord decided to fulfill his promise the promise of the Father when the Holy Spirit would be given to the church. Now, if you turn to Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, you will see that event take place. I won't, um, I won't go into great detail on this because we've already kind of discussed it when we were talking about spiritual gifts and the coming of the Holy Spirit. But let me just read this and make a few comments. It says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And all of a sudden, the Lord showed up in a powerful way that they had not experienced before. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as if a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. The 120 now were up in some upper room somewhere. They had been praying, and we talked about it a couple weeks ago, probably fasting during that time. And all of a sudden, at some point in time, on the day of Pentecost, when there's tons of people outside, when it prophetically points to a, the new beginning here, that all of a sudden the house is filled with this incredible sound of a 747. And maybe they all just opened up their eyes to see what was going on, and they, they couldn't believe what was happening. What does this mean? Their, their pulse was quickened. And 
Verse 3 says, Then there appeared to them, they saw this, divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled, which is exactly what the Lord promised, filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Other meaning heteros. Tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And the, the amazing part about these tongues is when they got up and began speaking that other people of other dialects from all over the kingdom who had come to Jerusalem for Pentecost began hearing the gospel and the mighty works of the Lord in their own language, in their own vernacular. Verse 5, And they're dwelling in Jerusalem... And there were dwelling in Jerusalem devout men from every nation under heaven. Why? It's the Feast of Pentecost, a required feast. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language, our literally own dialect. And then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are we not, are all not all those who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each in our own language or dialect in which we were born? And then it starts listing some of those dialects that were there. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Pergia and Pamphylia, which is where Paul actually journeyed on his second missionary journey, Egypt and parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we all hear them speaking in our own tongue. And what were they speaking? The wonderful works of God. Look what he's done. Look what he's done to us. This is the promise of the Father. Jesus was manifest before you. Jesus has ascended into heaven. Jesus has come to live in us in the person of the Holy Spirit, just like he promised. Verse 12, and they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? And others mocking said, they are full of new wine. Every time the gospel is presented, you will find some who consider it foolishness and mock, and you will find some who are ordained to receive eternal life will find in that gospel message strength and power and salvation. Same thing applied here. And then, first time ever in the New Testament, a Holy Spirit-inspired sermon. Peter now receiving the Holy Spirit for the first time, it says in verse number 14, stands out with the eleven and he raised his voice and said to them and preached this unbelievably powerful sermon that when we went through the book of Acts, verse by verse, sometimes word by word, maybe six years ago, uh, it took us, I don't know, like a month and a half to get through a sermon that's only 297 words long if you take out the Scripture verses. If you remove the Scripture verses, what came from Peter's lips in the English is 297 words. It's not even the size of a proper blog post. It's like, you know, two tweets, you know, on Twitter or something of like that. It's not really big at all. And he stands up with this incredible... Comp comprehension of prophetic Jewish scriptures. I mean, this is Peter the fisherman. This is Peter the, the guy who denied the Lord. This is Peter that did not have his PhD in, in Old Testament hermeneutics or probably had not memorized the Torah. I mean, this was Peter that seemed to me, and maybe you view him differently, seemed to me not even on the same level intellectually with the Apostle Paul. This was a guy who learned by doing and didn't learn by studying. And all of a sudden, he stands up in front of these people. This is Peter, who was so afraid that some maid then pointed out to him and says, yes, I recognize you. You were with this Jesus guy that he ran, cursed, ran, and hid. Stands up in front of this massive crowd in Jerusalem on a high holiday at the seat of, of Jewish power and preaches this message that is marvelous, that is incredible. One of the things we're doing as we just take a, a cursory glance at the book of Acts is looking not at, at it verse by verse, because we, we've kind of done that. 
What we're looking at is how the Holy Spirit's moving in the early church, how the Holy Spirit is taking normal men, carnal men, men that struggle and, and turning them into something that they can't even recognize. The same Holy Spirit who does that with them is the same Holy Spirit who wants to do that with you and I. I mean, he, he's no respecter of persons, and my experience has been, again, God can use anybody he wants, but my experience has been, and I see this confirmed in 1 Corinthians, that he does not choose the type of people that the world says are incredible. They're not the best-looking people. They're not the smartest people. They're not the people with the most natural charisma. He chooses the base, and he chooses the throwaways, and he chooses the people like me and the people like you and turns us into something that only he can get the glory. Make sense? And there's such encouragement in that. Well, you don't understand. I've, I've ruined my life. I've spent most of my life serving it for me. God can't do anything with me. You're exactly the person he's looking for. For the person who says, no, God, look what I have done. I am presenting to you this pharisaical, never have my hands been dirty kind of life. Use me because I'm better than other people. He's not even interested in them. So there's nothing that you and I have done that can't be forgiven and can't be turned into a ministry in the Lord's hand. Do you realize that? And Peter is a classic example of that. Again, I'm not going to really delve into this, but let me just read to you this 297-word sermon, and look at the verses and how Peter, how the Holy Spirit through Peter chains them together in such a way to show this apathetic, if not somewhat hostile crowd that were drawn just because of some sort of sound and because they're hearing something in their own dialect, some, of course, mocking that they're, jo that they're drunk, how he doesn't weave that together to prove to them that Jesus truly is the Messiah. Verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. <laughs> this is... I love this. Let this be known to you and heed my words. Can you almost see the intensity and the confidence that comes now when the Holy Spirit has come upon him? For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Who reads Joel? I mean, I can understand if it's part of the Torah. How about Deuteronomy or Leviticus and, and maybe the Genesis account or something of that name? Joel, spoken by the prophet Joel. Oh, okay. And he begins to quote chapter 2, verse 28 through 32. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servant and on my maid servant, those that are here that receive this, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs in the earth beneath. Blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. I mean, he's talking about the Spirit being poured out, and now he's talking about stuff that comes when Christ returns. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Joel? I mean, where did that come from? It came from the Holy Spirit. It came from God speaking to him. I don't think Peter, prior to this event taking place, who did not know when this event was going to take place, was working on his sermon. Let me get a couple. Help me out, John. What, what verses should I use? Oh, I don't know. Let's try Joel. Okay. Any particular chapter? Chapter 1, chapter 2? I mean, that didn't happen. There was no PowerPoint presentation. I don't think there was any pre-thought to this at all. It simply was what Jesus promised. When you stand up before kings and governors, or when you stand up, don't worry about what you're going to say before it happens. I will give you the words to say at that hour. Do you remember? And he stands up under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit while some are going, what does this mean? And the others are going, these guys are drunk. Not a, a crowd saying, preach it, brother. And he stands up in that crowd and quotes to them, Joel. 
And then he starts making an application. And his application is anything other than Peterish. It's, it's bold, it's, it's confrontational, it's, it's unashamed. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, is that what this is about? We heard you saying the wonderful works of God. It says in, in verse 11, we heard you proclaiming the wonderful works of God. Not once did we hear you say anything about Jesus, or who probably would have said that. We heard you talking about how good God is, how great he is, how powerful he is, how sovereign he is, how he can do anything he wants. That's why we're kind of drawn here. And now you quoted something from Joel, talking about the Holy Spirit falling, talking about people prophesying, which is what he's doing now, and then talking about this great and awesome and fearful day of the Lord when the, the, the sky will be turned to, to darkness and the moon blood and, and the, the people call on the name of the Lord, they'll be saved. And now you're getting up and switching and going from the wonderful works of God to proclaiming to us that Christ, who was crucified 50 days ago or 53 days ago, Christ is God himself. Men of Israel, hear these words. Verse 22, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourself also know. The guilt of what happened to Christ, your rejection of Christ is on you because you saw what he did in front of you. Verse 23, him being delivered not by you, not because he messed up or because you've got an upper hand, but delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Everything that happened to God, to Christ, fell under God's sovereignty. You think you put him down on the cross? You think you killed him? No, it was predetermined and foreknown by God. You have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and have put to death. Whom, he says, verse 24, God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Now, Peter says in his sermon to people who were coming to Jerusalem, a lot of these people in the last 50 days hadn't heard about this Jesus. I mean, Jesus was just, just another guy the Romans crucified, and once he was dead, the Jews were probably finished with him. And yes, there was a buzz around town that he'd been raised from the dead, and people had seen him, and, and they were testifying about that. But, but we don't see any, any wholesale persecution of the church taking place now, but you have people from Rome and from Pergia and Pamphylia and from Egypt that have now come, and this is the first time they've heard about this. Wait, 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 wait a second, who is this Jesus? And he did what? and he was crucified, and now you're claiming he was raised from the dead? Because some of the people heard it in their own Hebrew tongue, but the majority of them, listed all these countries here, heard it in their own dialects who had traveled to Jerusalem for Pentecost, and some of this may be new to them for the first time. Verse 24, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, and now we're jumping to the Psalms. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you, God, will not leave my soul in Hades. And, and Peter is showing, this is a prophetic Psalm here. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life, you will, make no, you will make me full of joy in your presence. Then he makes an application. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, who wrote this, just so that you'll understand David's not talking about himself, that he is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us today. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning not himself, 
but the resurrection of the Christ, that his, Christ's soul, would not be left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, all 120 of us. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. What is happening to us is a testament that the fact that Jesus is who he says he is. Verse 34, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he said, from Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, I added some things to that message, and it took about eight minutes, you know, to, to preach that. And Peter stands up, and he preaches this anointed, powerful, confident message. Let me tell you what he didn't do. He didn't try to build relational bridges with everybody. He didn't try to go to their ball games and invite them over to his house and I'll go to the bar with you and I'll laugh at your dirty jokes so I can build these relational bridges to get me a right or a privilege to be able to speak truth into your life. He didn't do that at all, did he? He had a message to proclaim. And he simply stood up and he told people the truth. Why? Because he knew that without the truth, they were lost and on their way to hell. And he had a message in him that was uncontainable. Jesus says, what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim from the mountaintop and from the rooftop. And that's exactly what he's doing. You and I have been given this incredible privilege of being able to carry with us this message of Christ, yet we bought in the church is pretty much bought into the, the idea that, no, 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 you, you don't want to be intolerant. Well, what, what does that mean? Well, you just don't need to offend anybody, uh, which means you don't need to be a jerk, but the gospel is offensive. It's offensive to everyone who doesn't know Christ. I mean, you're lost, you're on your way to hell, your sins are marked against you. By the way, that's offensive, especially since the time we're this big, we're taught we're good people, we're great people, we're, we, we have just life inside of us and unlimited potential and, and people are just lucky to know who we are because we want to foster self-esteem in everybody. Good news is, if once you recognize who you are in Christ, that Jesus loves you anyway and he's paid a penalty for your sins. And he declares, as the song that we just sang, he declares you righteous and pardoned and not guilty because Christ paid the penalty. Therefore, let the house of Israel know assuredly, without a doubt, that God has made this Jesus, by the way, just so that the guilt will fall where it may, has made this Jesus whom you crucified with your sin both Lord and Christ. And then something happened. Something that always happens when the Holy Spirit is behind the message, when the Holy Spirit is manifesting himself in a crowd or, or with a group. All of a sudden, what seemed like foolishness to a person whom the Holy Spirit wasn't moving on, all of a sudden seemed like truth. And, and, and something's got to change. And, and I recognize my sinful state. And, and oh my gosh, if this is true, and I've crucified the Lord, what am I supposed to do? And the guilt of our sin and begins to lay upon us. If you, will, if you will spend some time reading biographies of great Christian leaders, you'll find that everyone, I mean, we're talking about Luther and D.L. Moody and, and just any great Christian leader, you will find that a point in their life comes when they hear the gospel message that was either apathetic to, they were either apathetic to or was offensive to prior to and they rejected it. And all of a sudden when they heard it and they saw a holy God exalted in front of them, that just by being in front of a holy God, his resplendent righteousness makes us recognize our carnality and our sin and our defilement. 
How can I have access to a God like that when I'm covered with my sins? The Jews spent their entire life trying to clean the outside of the cup and trying to follow all the man-made rules to, to somehow make themselves righteous before God. And God said that man's righteousness is nothing more than filthy rags compared to the holiness of God. One sin, one lie, one evil thought disqualifies me from being in the presence of a holy God. How can I ever have access to him? I can't. But Christ, who is perfect, imputed his righteousness to me. I'm going to take my righteousness, Steve, and I'm going to put it on your account. I'm going to give it to you like it is you. So when my father sees you, he doesn't see you in your sin. He sees you covered with my righteousness. Well, what do I do with my sin? This this thing that I carry around that has to be atoned for, that I'm destined to spend eternity in hell paying for. What do I do with that? And Jesus said, just impute it to me. I who knew no sin received Steve's sin on himself. God the Father poured his wrath out on his son on the cross for hours. And as, as we've been studying in John, he didn't he didn't even want us to see the agony the son was going through. So why God was pouring out his wrath on his son, a darkness fell over the land, you remember? For three hours. So no one can see what the son was going through. And finally, when my sin was paid for by the son, Jesus says, it is finished, paid in full. Commit my soul to you. And it was done. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And then the, the magic of conviction, the incredible power of the gospel begins to move. It says, and when they heard this, what we just read, they were cut to the heart. That word means to be pierced or pricked are stabbed. The Greek word means to be greatly pained and deeply moved. Do you remember what it was like when the conviction of your sin and the lack of joy in your life was upon you? And maybe it was the time God was like putting his hand heavy upon you before you finally bent your knee and came to Christ in, in faith and, and humility and surrendered your life to him during whatever period that was. It, it was like it was like this gloom, this fear, this, this anguish you carried around with you wherever you went. I recognize who I am, and I go to a party with my friends, and I'm not really happy because I know this is wrong. This is wrong. God, what am I supposed to do? And They were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest that they were there, the apostles, men and brethren, what do we do? How do we get this guilt off our shoulders? What do we do? The effect of Peter's confrontational, loving, spirit-empowered words was immediate. Then Peter said to them, repent. You have a change of mind. You have a change of mind about Christ, about yourself, about sin, about your sincerely held convictions, about what you think what makes you happy, about your pride or your, your rights. And you, you have a, a change of mind about everything. You relent from your formal former way of life. And let each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. To the Jews, it was the most degrading thing for a Jew to do. Because the only people in Judaism that were ever baptized were those people who were Gentiles who decided to be a Jew. They became a proselyte. I know we're not of national Israel. I know I'm not a racial Jew. I know I'm not a true Jew. But I want to adopt Judaism. Ah, well, we'll accept you, but you're going to have to be baptized, which symbolically kind of washed off your, your filth and Gentileness. I mean, no Jew would ever be baptized. And yet that's what the Lord had laid out for, for an outward sign into the entrance of fellowship of the church. Repent, and we'll see how serious you are about it. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for remission of sin, and you shall receive the promise of the Father. Not you shall receive heaven 
and happiness and your best life now. Not that you shall receive all these other things, but you'll receive what we receive. What is this manifest presence inside of us that has convinced you that the gospel is true? Because we have God living in us, not on Mount Sinai, not in the tabernacle, not in the temple, which man can only enter once a year to sprinkle blood on the on the bema seat. Not that kind of aloof God, but he now lives in you. And what we've experienced, what we have, you can have this visible sign of salvation. Paul calls it the guarantee of our future inheritance in him, the pledge. And then he goes on to talk a little more about this Holy Spirit. He says, for the promise that we've just received is for you and your children. It's for the nation of Israel and for those who are far off for the Gentiles that Paul became a missionary to, and to as many as the Lord our God will call. People say that this whole idea of the sovereignty of God and salvation was, uh, was something Paul came up with, because most of it dealt with Paul's writing, but it's not. Holy Spirit speaking these very same words to Peter. It doesn't say as many as decide to consider the claims of Christ and make a decision to follow Jesus. Just walk on down that aisle, shake this old preacher's hand, say this prayer, get baptized. Here's a box of tithing envelopes, you're in. doesn't work that way at all. Even Peter here, the Holy Spirit through Peter, is showing that it's the Lord our God that calls those people to him. It's the doctrine of election showing that God is sovereign in salvation. Isn't that wonderful? That's why there's a huge crowd... And the gospel is presented, some mock, some are convicted and don't do anything about it, and some recognize who this Christ is. It's also for us today to receive the promise of the Father, not just in salvation, but in all the other blessings that come with it. Acts 2.40 And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them. The word exhorted there is a derivative of the word we get Holy Spirit from, our comforter, our paraclete, a paracletos. That means one who comes alongside, one that encourages, one that undergirds, one that builds up. He's encouraging them now. And he's saying, be saved, or literally in the Greek, it means save yourself. It means to keep yourself safe or deliver yourself, preserve yourself, to rescue yourself from danger and destruction or peril, to make yourself whole. Be saved from this perverse generation, this depraved, wicked, crooked, stained with filth, impure, foul, polluted generation. We've been preaching that forever. That's what pastors preach all the time and everybody gets mad at them. Save yourself from this perverse generation, the perverse media, the perverse friends, the perverse attitude that we have, the perverse institutions, the the perverse things that we associate with and think it doesn't rub off on us. It's almost like Peter's presented the gospel. This is what will happen to you when you get saved. And then he's saying, for those of you who choose to, that you need to walk in sanctification and holiness and righteousness because the spirit who comes to live within you is not the carnal spirit or the politically correct spirit or the tolerant spirit. It is the Holy Spirit. And for us to be like him, we're to radiate his holiness. True? The same exhortation applies to us today, but that's not the scope of what we're talking about. It says, then those, notice not all, but just those, who gladly received his words and were baptized. Gladly received his words with joy and rejoicing. They gladly received and accepted what was being offered. All of it. Salvation, eternal life, persecution, light in darkness, walking away from the perverted, perverse world and culture that you've learned to live in, severing relationships that don't edify and treating those people like a missionary to a lost person. 
Finding that the members of your own family may end up being your enemies because that's the price that Christ paid. Realizing that if they treated the master of the house and said he works miracles out by Beelzebub, Lord of the flies, Satan himself, how much more so will they do you? Count the cost. When Christ lives inside of you and the person of the Holy Spirit, the world will try to stamp out your light because it's dark. And John said, and Jesus said in John 3, because the light in us exposes the evil in them. True? Our light is supposed to be on a hill so the world can see and glorify Christ. Sermon on the Mount. And those who said, yes, 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 I count everything as lost to receive this pearl of great price. Then those who gladly received his words were baptized. And about that day, 3,000 souls were added to the 120. Now the church, as far as we know, is about 3,120. And the church is born, and great things take place, and hallelujah! But then what? What am I going to do with all these people? I mean, what are we going to teach them? I mean, I don't have any quarterlies. We don't have any life ways. We have no Christian radio and no concerts to go to. There's no devotional guides. There's no Bibles that they have. I mean, what, 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 what are we supposed to do? Where am I going to house all these people? I don't have an arena to rent to be able to have a, a church service with 3,000 people. There's no mega churches. There's no satellite campuses. There's no PowerPoint or, or video cameras. None of that stuff. What do we do? And what they did is what Jesus did. And he began to teach them to live by faith. To live by faith. As I share with you, we're not going to be able to finish all of this. But let me just share a little bit with you of what living by faith is all about. And I want you to know that living by faith takes place when your resources end and your need is here and your resources are here. It's the gap between those two. We think life is easy when my need is here and my resources are here. And I kick back and do nothing. I mean, I got money stashed in the bank. As a matter of fact, I've got my, all my money coming in each month and I'm able to save a whole bunch for a rainy day and be able to take vacations and buy bigger houses and cars. And God has really blessed me because my, my resources are here and my needs are only here. So between my needs and my resources, I can fill my wants, which is great. That's the American dream. That's what we try to do. Strive really hard to, to accumulate more so we can, of course, give more and bless more because, after all, nobody wants to be poor. Are there any blessings in being poor? Yes, actually there is. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. But the parallel passage in Luke says, Blessed are the poor. And then we find out in the New Testament in Timothy and some of the other writings that all of a sudden it talks about the, the evilness and the deceitfulness of wealth. How are we become defined by the money that we have. And, and I'm, I want you to know that, that I've lived where my resources are here and my needs and wants are here. And I've lived where my needs are here and my resources are here. And Lindsay just recently found out about this. I think I told Justice too. All the years they were growing up. I mean, we never made enough pay our bills. Never. Not one month ever. I had these Excel sheets. In the beginning of the month, I would write out, you know, all the bills I had coming in, all the money I knew I had coming in, and we'd budget so much money per week for food and gas and incidentals and stuff like that. And, and it was always short. It was always either a couple hundred dollars short or they would come out without me knowing it, and they would fill up my LP gas 300-gallon thing and hit me with a bill for $1,500. You know, when, when you're barely able to, to cover, to cover the $200 and $300 shortfall. And every single month, God miraculously worked it out. I mean, I don't know how. There were times in my life when we had nothing and God would supply those needs. And every time He supplied those needs, they became, they became high points in my spiritual life. I got a job working at New Life 91.9. It was a great job. I was able to be involved in ministry. Did it for a number of years, almost almost 10 years. And when I went in to resign, I told Joe Paulo this. I said, you know, having this job is the worst thing that ever happened to me spiritually. Why? Because before, my faith was between my 
needs and my resources. Living by faith, and God did incredible things. But since I took this job, which is a great thing, everybody's supposed to work. We're not talking about staying home and being a bum. But the fact is that now my resources are here, and I only had to trust God this much for my faith. And I can't wait to get back in a situation where God can do some incredible things in my life. Living by faith. But what is this faith? It's defined in Hebrews 1. Look what it says. Now, faith, and the word is pistis here, it means to trust, and we've talked about that before. Faith is the substance, it's the foundation, it's what's placed under. It's that which underlies the apparent. It's what makes a Christian a Christian. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. And that's not dreamy hope, that's not like, oh, I hope I can go, I hope it doesn't rain, I hope I get this for Christmas. Oh, this hope for, it's a, it's a, unfortunate word we use in the English, but it means confident expectation. It means to rest and abide still or to expect fully. I have faith and confidence that my God will come through. I'm not hoping like I hope he does, but if he doesn't, you know, what am I going to do? I have this confident expectation. I'm resting and abiding still and I expect fully. Faith is the substance of thing hoped for, and the evidence or the proof of the conviction, the assurance, the supreme confidence of things not seen. Not seen. Chapter 11 of Hebrews just lays out Old Testament saints, and by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. And then it rolls into the New Testament saints. By faith they did this, and by faith they did this. And the whole chapter ends by saying the world was not worthy of men like that. I mean, why, why is Faith so powerful and important in a Christian life. Well, the very next verse in Hebrew says, For by it, faith, the elders obtained a good testimony. Second Corinthians says that we walk by faith, by trust, not by sight. Romans 12, 13 says that to each of us is given a certain measure, a certain metron of faith. So as far as I say to the grace of God given me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. Why? As God has dealt to each one, every single one, a measure of faith. Now, I don't know what your measure is. I know what my measure is, and my prayer all the time is, Lord, increase my faith. Isn't that yours? And I find out that the only way God increases my faith is to put me in such situations where my faith has to be tested. We say, Lord, please, that's such a trial. No, it's, you're allowing me to prove to you how truly powerful I am. Philippians 4, 6 and 7 is like the picture of living by faith. Be anxious for nothing. You don't understand. You don't understand. My job is they're closing the plan. I'm not going to have a job. I don't have much money, and my wife is sick, and they're going to cancel my insurance. And my car is like only has like three cylinders that are working. I mean, I mean, the life's terrible, and I've been there, and it is. It's it's horrible, isn't it? It's absolutely horrible when stuff like that happens. But don't be worried about that. Don't be anxious for that. Why? But in everything, by prayer. And supplication with thanksgiving. God, you are sovereign. You're going to do whatever you want to do. And whatever you choose to do, I will praise you for it. Let your requests be known unto God. And what happens when I do that? doesn't say the peace of God will come to you when he changes your circumstances. It says the peace of God will come to you when you lay your circumstances at his feet and aren't anxious about them anymore. And the peace of God, which makes no sense to the lost out there, will guard your heart and minds through Christ Jesus. Second Thessalonians 1.3, Paul commended them because their faith was growing exceedingly. They were growing in the midst of persecution. And on and on and on it goes. So what is faith? Why is faith so important? And how did Jesus teach his disciples to live by faith? If you would, turn to, turn to Matthew chapter 6. What really impressed me this week is the areas of our life in which our faith begins to falter. And every one of us go through these, and so do I. I'm not speaking to you as someone who has arrived. I'm speaking to you as someone who is on the same journey you're on. 
faces the same things that you face. But the fact is that, that I've noticed in my own life that there's certain areas that, um, that my faith begins to falter. For me, it's money. Money for you? I can have enough money. It's never enough money. You know, there's money here and there's money here and this can happen and that blows up and what are we going to do? And, and, you know, we're going to have enough money to pay our bills. Going to have money to pay this medical bill. I can't believe that I'm going to put this on a credit card or, or should I even have a credit card or, or what's going on? Money. God, if it's true that you have a cattle on a thousand hills, can't you just butcher a couple of them and send money my way? You ever been there? Money problems are the future. What's going to happen in the future? I mean, the fact is the stock market is really high, but it's going to hide. It's maybe going to crash. We've got ISIS that's over there. We've got this terrorist stuff. We've got all this division in our nation right now. We've got a president who can't do anything right, and the media that can't do anything wrong, or so they think, and, and everybody's all divided and all this kind of, what's going to happen in our future? What's going to happen in my future? Are you going to find somebody uh, that, uh, that I'm going to be able to marry? Am I ever going to have a family? Am I ever going to buy a house? I mean, the fact is that, that are you ever going to find somebody that, that's going to love me? How are my kids going to do? Are they going to be okay? Are they going to grow? I'm so scared of my kids. I just want to hold on to them really tight. We all struggle with that stuff. All of us do. If you're alive, you struggle with this. What about my health? Some of you, that doesn't matter to you. It will when you get older. In fact, is what, what about my health? You know, I, I don't know about that, and everything's so expensive, and if I don't have health insurance now that I can't afford, then I get penalized by the government. Does that make any sense to you? Another topic for another day. But anyway, the, the fact is, I don't know what's going to go on with my health and people get older and their bodies start breaking down. It is what it is. Our protection, or for security, and not necessarily security like protection, but security like as a person. God, will you keep me? Will you hold me? Will you take care of me? Will you meet my needs? And if you're not going to meet my needs, maybe I need to go out and meet my needs in a carnal way, and then I get my life all messed up, and then I ask you to repair it, and you repair it, and I mess it up again, and... You ever been there? It's faith. I mean, God, how can I trust you that much? And that's what Jesus did. He, he took all of these together, the stuff we really struggle about the most, and he, he, he gave us some assurances in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Let me just read this to you, beginning in verse 24 of Matthew chapter 6. He says, No one can serve two masters. Why? For you either hate the one and love the other, or else you'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. What masters are you talking about here, Lord? You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore, based on that, I say to you, do not worry about your life, about your security, about your health, about all that kind of stuff, or what you eat, or what will you drink, nor about your body, what will you put on. Is life is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more of value than they? <clears throat> it's true. Uh, all these animals, all these birds, all these squirrels, God takes care of all of them, right? Why would I assume he wouldn't take care of me? Well, because I've committed worse sins than the squirrels have. And so therefore God is punishing me. Okay. Maybe you have, but he also didn't call a squirrel, sorry, Debbie, he didn't call a squirrel into an intimate relationship with his son like he did you. So maybe your sin is greater, but you're loved more by the Father. Which of you worrying can add one cubic to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Verse 28. Consider the, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now here's the application. Now if, or since, God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? I mean, what father lets their kid run around starving or naked or hungry or not protected unless he's an evil, bad father? True? None of us would do that to our kids in here. None of us. We would lay our lives down for our children. Justice is learning that, isn't it? I'll do anything for my kid. Well, if we, being evil, know how to do that for our children, how much more will our Heavenly Father do for us? Oh, Steve of little Faith. Verse 31. Therefore, 
Do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. So what am I supposed to do? I'm to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto me. Let me just go through these really quick, and then we'll close. If you continue one chapter over to chapter 8, you will see how everything with Christ is based on faith. The incurable, the inconceivable, the unbelievable, everything is based on faith. Chapter 8 begins with the Roman centurion. And again, the Roman centurion comes to Jesus asking for something. Jesus says, I'll go to your house. No, don't go to my house. I'm unworthy to have you under my house. Just speak the word because I am also under authority, recognizing that Christ was under God the Father's authority. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those following, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith even in all of Israel. Verse 13, it says, Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, the faith that you have in me, let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Then, of course, we have the disciples who are struggling with nature. Oh, my gosh, nature's coming. The hurricane's coming. The tornado's coming. What are we supposed to do about that? They're in a boat. boat is swamped with waves, and they're afraid with the Son of God in the boat. But he said to them, why are you fearful? Oh, you of little faith. And then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. I mean, even nature is subject to Christ, and we are in him. And then, of course, the incurable ones come. The ones who the medical profession have said, it's done, it's over, it's finished, there's no help at all. There behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith to actually not go to the doctor or not just fret and worry about it, but to get him to Jesus, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Then there was a big discussion and debate about how can this Jesus basically say that, that he can forgive sins. So then Jesus says, he says, well, what's easier to say your sins are forgiven or rise, stand up and walk? But that so you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And a man who was withered like this stood and rose and departed to his house. Even the incurable. We find out that there's this woman with this issue of blood. Cannot imagine what that must have been like. Twelve years, this issue of blood. Can't control it. She comes up and says, If I could just touch the hem of his garment. The hem of a Pharisee or a, a Jewish rabbi's garment basically was like the insignia on a, on a soldier today. It shows what their rank is. If I could just hold his rank and his authority of his garment, I'll be healed. But Jesus turned around when he saw her, said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. This woman had spent tons of money trying to be cured, and she was incurable until she came to Christ and believed, believed. Two blind men comes up and touches their eyes and said, according to your faith, let it be done to you. And they regain their sight. Then you have the impossible, things that just can't be done, things that are beyond our, our idea of even accepting it, like walking on water. Peter steps out of the boat, walks to Jesus, begins to doubt, starts to sink. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, ye of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you? I gotten you this far. Just keep your eyes focused on me. Then there's the unthinkable. Jesus doing something that you and I can't even imagine because it's, it just doesn't follow with a who we are, maybe our prejudices. Here's a Gentile woman from Canaan who comes to Jesus, the Jews hate the Gentiles, and says, will you please heal my daughter? And Jesus says, why are you coming to me? And she talks about even the dogs get to eat scraps from the table of the master. And Jesus says, oh woman, great is your faith. Let it be done to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. And the, the Jews are going, that's, that's unconceivable to me God would do that. Then Jesus is trying to teach them about the leaven of the Pharisees. And they're worried about the fact they didn't bring bread. 
Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O ye of little faith, why did you reason among yourself because you bought no bread? Don't you remember the, the twelve loaves, the, the seven loaves and the five loaves and all the baskets that were, that were picked up? I mean, if I was faithful in the past and fed 5,000 men and then 7,000 men, why are you worried about me not being able to take care of your needs? And then those people who've tried and failed, the unable. Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration. The disciples are there trying to cast a demon out of a young boy and can't. So that Jesus sighs, bring him to me, cast out the demons. They come to him privately afterwards and says, why couldn't we cast it out? And Jesus says, because of your lack of faith, because of your unbelief. For surely I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, and this is not hyperpole, this is this is really Jesus speaking this. If you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from there to here and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. I don't really believe that. But then he turns around and says it again when he curses the fig tree on his last week entry into Jerusalem. Surely I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, which was withered at Christ's command, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, it will be done. It all is based on faith. All of it. And in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus gives them some on-the-job training on faith. I was hoping to at least get through this today, but I'm not. We will, we will pick this up next week. We will talk about Matthew chapter 10, and then we will go back and we will look at the last few verses in the book of Acts. Matter of fact, turn, turn with me there now, and let me just read those to you in closing. Which shows you how the early church actually functioned. And they did it by living by faith. Verse 41. Soon those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Acts chapter 1, verse 41. Yeah, sorry, chapter 2, correct. Verse 42. And they, the 3,120, those that were still there, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They wanted to know nothing else but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What can we know more about Christ? I don't really care about ball games that are on television. I don't really care about shows that are coming on. I don't really care about want to see the new Star Wars movie. I really don't care about any of those kind of things. I don't want to know about this Christ. I want to know about this man who's changed my life. I want to know about whose kingdom I now belong. I want to know about this king. They continued steadfast in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. I mean, now this was their family. It was more than just people to get together once a week. This was their family, people they could trust. And in the breaking of bread and in prayers, multiple prayers with an S on the end. Then fear, terror and dread and godly reverence came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done to the apostles. Many miracles and then attesting miracles who pointed to the fact God was behind this. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Talk about living by faith. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food and gladness with simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. I was pressed with the question this week, and I'll close with this. If what if God revealed to us that the key to having people added daily to the church was the fact that church sold, the members of the church sold their possessions and give, gave to everyone who had need, and God then turned around <clears throat> like he did for 40 years in the wilderness, he turned around and met their needs daily. What if, and, and I'm not saying there is, but what if there was a, an indelible connection that God specifically, clearly told every one of us that that's the key. You want to see people saved, then you give everything and let me meet your needs. How many of us would say, you know what, getting people saved would be a really good thing, but I'm going to hold on to all my stuff because I've worked harder than Scott has for his, and I don't want to fund his lifestyle, and so therefore I I can't bring myself to trust, not Scott enough,
but to trust Christ enough to be able to do that. So I'm okay with not seeing people saved daily. Now, I'm not suggesting this, and I'm not moving in that direction, and I'm not even saying there is a connection here, but if there was, well, would that not hit us where every one of us live? Every single one of us live. We're going to talk about Matthew chapter 10. We're going to look at these passages here. And I think we're going to see that what truly led this church to do the things that they did to turn literally the world upside down in one generation under severe persecution in the hotbed of Judaism is the fact that they learned to live by faith. And I have been praying and I've been asking the Lord to teach me how to do that to what it means to live by faith and what it means to trust you explicitly, even in the stuff that I, I feel more comfortable trusting myself. And God is beginning to work in me, and I know he's working in many of your lives, and I know that we've seen him do incredible things like Justice just shared and how somebody will be sharing next week also some of the things that God has done in their life. But I don't know about you, but I want more. Do you want more? I want more. I want to see God move in a powerful way, in an incredible way. And I think until I get to the point where I'm willing to say, God, I want to see you move no matter what it costs me, then I'm still hedging my bet, then I'm still holding back, then I'm still somewhat like Ananias and Sapphira. And I don't want to be that way. I think I'd rather be like Barnabas, who basically just gave everything to the Lord, and who did God choose to go with Paul on the missionary journey? Ananias and Sapphira? Man, they're pushing up daisies in the back. But it was Barnabas. So let's just... Ask the Lord this week to, to really move in our life closer to Him. Amen? Let me pray.